let's turn together to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to kind of hop around in that book together tonight. We're going to start off in chapter 5, so you can turn there or scroll over there or whatever. Uh, Glad that you're here with us tonight. You may have noticed uh, a group just got up and left, and uh, I'm trying not to not be offended by that, but they may be the smartest kids in the whole room. Um, our, the oldest crop of our, uh, from our child care, uh, from time to time, they're going to come in and kind of be a part of the corporate experience and stuff like that and uh, start to train them up a little bit. And so uh, we're always happy to have them in here and, uh, and being cared for by our nursery volunteers. Um, if you're here for the first time tonight, uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. You heard from John Ringo, who's another one of the pastors at the beginning. And um, we're glad that you're here, glad that you made some time uh, to be with us tonight and hope that you feel at home here. Um, and, you know, we've been singing about some things that are pretty powerful, um, about the, the, the presence of God among us. And, you know, that last song, we, we intentionally have changed a few words in that one and a bunch of other ones, uh, honestly, uh, just to kind of, of, you know, adjust some things because, you know, we don't, we don't ask God to show up. God is, he's already shown up in fullness, you know, and so uh, we don't ask him to come and flood this place and fill the atmosphere because he's already here. And so we changed it instead of saying, come flood this place, we change it to you flood this place. Because when we get to the bridge of that song, it's saying, help us become, what, aware, more aware, more aware, more aware of your presence and your goodness and your nearness to us. Um, and, and that is what, you know, that's so much of, of when we gather together on Sundays and in our community groups and those kinds of things. It's this unique presence of God. Um, well, his presence is not unique. Us dialing into it is unique. Uh, that when his children gather together, he, uh, I don't know, he responds and he moves. And so uh, tonight, you know, we've been singing and he's near. We're going to get into the scriptures and he's near. We're going to, uh, we're going to pray together. We're going to hear about one of our missionaries that's out serving. We're going to even hear some announcements. And even in the announcements, you know, like God is with us and active and doing things. And um, the last couple of Sundays, I've kind of been reviving an old series on consumerism, but it's not a, it's not a take on it that is about being anti-materialism. Although there is like that's you know something we need to hear and talk about. This series it really doesn't have any, anything to do with uh, how like materialism grabs a hold of us and becomes idols and all those kinds of things. It's really about how we, as trained consumers here in America. We develop this kind of this mindset, you know, this it's a part of our worldview, and we're we're so conditioned to uh, to the advertisements and the messages that are coming our way all the time that it sort of uh, it it sometimes makes it difficult to distinguish thinking that way toward. Uh, things that we buy and purchase as consumers, as the, the ads, that's what they're appealing to. Um, and sometimes that, that shaping of the mind ends up applying to relationships that we have and ends up replying to our relationship with God as well. 
And so uh, I've been just asking God to help us all separate a consumer mindset when it comes to the different areas of life and not just let it bleed into everything. And so if you want to be a really savvy consumer when it comes to, like I've, I've been using buying a toaster as an example because that's a really safe example, right? So uh, if you want to be a really savvy uh, like the consumer when it comes to buying a toaster, then that is awesome. But that same mindset cannot be applied to your marriage or to your close friendships and it really can't be applied to your relationship with God. But sometimes we have a hard time separating that out. Um, so this is the third week of the series. And tonight I, I want to take a, a little bit of a different term. Because I don't think that what I'm going to talk about is like, we, I don't think we directly tie it to consumerism. But I think it's a part of it. So if we go back to the, to the beginnings of the Bible. And in Genesis 3, you know, God has created everything. And he has labeled it all as good. He's very pleased. He, um, you know, created in, in six different sections. And then on the seventh one, he rested. And it's not because he was tired. Because God doesn't get tired. He rested to enjoy his creation. And in that rest, uh, he is there with everything that, you know, the created order that we see around us. And there's Adam and there's Eve. There's the garden. There's everything just as he wanted it and everything is good. And when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, you know, there's, there was the, the one restriction. You could eat of any tree in the garden, uh, but I don't want you to eat from this one. And through their choice to eat of that tree instead, we see something, something form uh, in us, which is this rivalry with God. That when being tempted to eat the fruit, the, the fruit that was hanging on the tree, it, it went from, from being just ordinary fruit into being something that could uh, really kind of, in their minds, form them into like the same like, powerful, all-knowing being as God who had created them. Instead of realizing that they were a part of the created order, they thought, man, if we eat of that tree, next thing you know, we're going to be just like him. We're going to know the difference. There was this rivalry in them with God. We see it panning out over history where, uh, you know, as Adam and Eve, when once they sinned, God put them outside of the garden. He very graciously took care of, of their needs. He made clothing for them. He... Uh, there's just there's a lot of grace in how it happened because they could have just been destroyed by just by the his own holiness could have destroyed them but but God saw he protected them from that and this provision and outside of the garden they you know they had kids and you know somehow or another we don't really know how how all of it went down but basically eventually we all got here okay the whole earth got populated and um, but we have passed on that rivalry. And I really want to zero in on that idea tonight. That we sometimes, whether we admit it or not, we see God as a rival king to our little kingdoms. Um, you get to Romans 1, and there's this same description of, of, of basically saying that we get to the point where we, we 
end up telling God that we know better than you. And our lives gradually like drift off course to the point where God, you know, it's, there's just such a distance there and our lives are filled with chaos, you know. Um, and so we see this warning that exists about that kind of tension and that rivalry. So in a most basic sense, we just need to kind of all be on the same page that, that when, when we were born, we were born with that disposition, with that leaning towards like ourselves being like the centerpiece of the universe and everything. Um, that we are self-reliant, we are self-centered, we are all these things, self-whatever, fill in the blank after that. That all is, how, is where we were born into. Jesus comes and he offers us this new, this new life where we are no longer centered around self, but now we are centered around him. And so following after Jesus is really about learning how to part from that inherited life of self-driven everything and then learning to be Christ-driven and Christ-centered in everything. And it's slow and it takes a long time and it's something that, that, that Jesus himself leads us in how to do. Um, so that tension already exists. And so here's where consumerism comes in. We have this tension between uh, I am the king and then, but Jesus is the king, and I want to be. I want to. I want to be um, in Jesus's kingdom. I want him to be the king of my life. I want to not be the king, so he can be the king. Um, but then there's part of you that's like, but I still kind of want to be the king, you know. So there's that tension that exists, and then like here's where consumerism comes in. We we're inundated with messages all the time that just tell us how awesome we are, and and puts us ahead of everything else. And the last few weeks, I've talked about the. Just the strategy of like just um, the economy and advertising and how all those things kind of fit together and and the companies are constantly uh, puffing up our egos in some ways or they're pointing out how our lives are deficient without their product in other ways you know and so we get all these kind of mixed things back and forth um, they're uh, on the negative side, you know, sometimes they're saying like, well, until you have this, you're just never going to be happy or you're just never going to, uh, you know, you'll never be fulfilled, you'll never be cool, you'll never be keeping up with the Joneses, you'll kind of, you know, whatever, all those kind of things. That's kind of one strain that's kind of being whispered to us. But the other is just constantly appealing to us um, by, by saying, you know, however you want it to be, it can be that way. You know, so you go, you order a steak, they want to know exactly how you want it. If you go to McDonald's, they want to, like, if you can tell them any, any sort of combination of all those things, you know, that's great. You go to the racetrack gas station, you know, and it has, like, all the different flavors, and there's, like, six billion different flavor combinations, you know. It's, like, whatever you want, whatever, whatever the consumer wants, that's fine. Um, I've talked about how you can take stuff back to Walmart. You don't even have to have a receipt or even have bought it at Walmart. They don't really care. They're, like, whatever it takes, you know, you're the king, you're the king, you're the king, um, Last week I talked a little bit about just how our, we're always being told our satisfaction is guaranteed with products and how that, that kind of shapes our thinking a little bit of like, I should always be like completely satisfied with everything that happens. And if not, then I, I can take it back. I can reject it. Um, right like next to that idea is, is like the, the customer is always right. You know, that you hold all the power as the one doing the buying. Um, when, that, when that's our buying and selling uh, world that we live in, and that's the advertising that's coming our way, and and that's what you're like born into. You so first you have this nature that's leaning toward yourself, and then all these messages that are constantly coming your way. 
we're crazy if we think that being an American, like in that, in that sense, like culturally in that sense, in a consumer-driven culture, we're crazy to think that that doesn't impact how we approach the Lord. It absolutely, it absolutely impacts it. Um, because we're, we already have this problem, and now this problem is being fanned into flame by the life that we live uh, all around us. So when you're constantly being told that you're the most important, you're the most important, or buy this thing and then you'll become the most important, it's all pushing self and pushing self and pushing self. And so then you come to church, or you go to community group, or you open your Bible, or you begin to pray, and there's this power struggle that happens. Because you're essentially, you're, like when, you, when you pray, you're putting yourself in submission to God. But we really, we really don't like submission. In fact, we hate authority pretty much all the time. You, know? you let a police officer pull you over, and you can't stand authority in that. And he's like, you're speeding. And you're like, well, but... Uh. But he's like, no, you were, look, I'll show you the radar gun. Like, you were speeding. We hate that kind of authority. We love it if they're a fugitive escaped from a you know, prison or something, and they're running wild in the neighborhoods. We're like, we love them. You know, come on now. But you don't want to get a ticket. And no offense to any of our law enforcement officers, but we just don't like being told that we're wrong. If you've ever had to appear in court uh, for a traffic ticket or for anything else, and you have some judge who holds all the power, it's like, yep, you've got to pay us 500 bucks. You're like, what, why? Because you said so? Yes, exactly. You know? We hate that. Because we, we deserve a voice, right? We should get to have it our way. Our satisfaction should be guaranteed. We're the customer. We're number one. We don't, we don't like anyone over us in authority. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it. And so, you know, you see it on social media, you know. So that's like, our, that's what, like where our power comes in. It's like, well, if, if that judge is going to make me pay this fine for this speeding ticket, then I can... I'll just totally like blast this judge on Facebook and everyone will know. You know, it's like nobody cares, you know, like whatever. But it makes you feel better a little bit because you're like, yeah, I got back at that judge. Or I got back at, at uh, I tweeted about Taco Bell and I'm never going to Taco Bell again. Like that'll show them, you know. And then corporate Taco Bell tweets back at you. It's like, sorry, you're unhappy, you know. And you're like, yeah, that's right. They heard me because I'm the customer, you know. It has all this weird stuff that's in there. So when we have a pre-existing condition... The tension of rival, like wanting to rival the Lord, and we're trying to learn and be coached through this change and this transformation, but then we're being inundated with messages. It's just it's so much, it's so chaotic. So then, what happens is you know you know how like how not driven to pray you are after that. Absolutely, who wants to come in and like confess? Who wants to come before the Lord and say? Uh, search my heart, try me, test me, lead me in the way everlasting. Who wants to go to the rival king and say, hey, you know better than me about my life. Tell me what I need to do. Of course we don't. So we resist it. We run from it. And maybe, maybe somewhere at the like near the root of some of our problem with maybe consistency with some of like uh, things like prayer and studying the word and being transparent with our like relate in our relationships and uh, serving other people and maybe there's just a lot maybe and within all those things maybe somewhere in there it's the fact that every one of those acts requires us to submit and we don't want to submit. 
when we are fighting authority, there's, let me give you three things that, uh, just to kind of highlight it. One, we hate being told what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And that's the, like, remember when you were growing up and you kept, you were like, man, I can't wait till this and nobody can tell me what to do anymore, you know? We hate it. We've hated it from a very young age. Then you hate it as an adult when you still have a boss and they're telling you what to do. And then if you are the boss, you kind of like wish sometimes somebody else would tell you what to do because it's kind of like weird. But there's this, like, we don't really want to have anyone in authority over us. We hate being told what to do. The second one, we hate being told that we're wrong. We hate it, we hate it, we hate it. Um, And the third one, is we hate being told that we need to change. We hate when someone says, hey, you're this way and you need to, you need to become this way. It's like, you don't even know me. That's one of my favorite things. Like, you don't know me. Every time someone says it, I just laugh. And not at the person, but just like at the argument. You know? It's like, you know, I, I can't really think of a good example, but it's like, if that's your reaction, like, you don't even know me. Like, they don't have to know you to tell you this, you know, like, whatever. Like, that's just the weirdest argument. But there's so, like, we've all been in those positions before where someone has, trying to be, has been trying to speak something into our lives or correct something or even in, like, the little things of, like, hey, you need to be over here instead of over here. And that's our thing is, like, you have to have a relationship with me before you can correct me. You don't know my story. You don't know where I've been. You don't know all that kind of stuff. That is, like... That's this issue that we have with authority. So if you want to take issue with um, the judicial system, the law enforcement system, those kinds of authorities, if you don't, if you don't want your doctor to tell you what to do, uh, you know, the, those kinds of things, then that's you know, whatever. However, if that transfers into your relationship with the Lord, that transfers into your relationship within community where people are trying to, like we're trying to, carry each other's burdens, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, it's really problematic. And so what I want to do just in a few minutes is I want to take those three things that we kind of hate because we see Jesus as a rival king. And I just want to, I want to give us a couple of things to think about that maybe kind of slip away from us sometimes. Um, so, yeah, so within those three bullet points, let's look at a couple of things. In Hebrews chapter 5, Look at 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save uh, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, those two verses, we could, we could hang out for years on those, I believe. I mean, there's some intensity there. But within, the, within that first objection to authority, when it says we hate, we hate being told what to do, let me, let me offer a couple of things to keep in mind. One would be this, that submission exists within the Trinity. Submission to authority exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all fully and equally God. Um, the Spirit is not like the JV, you know, whatever of the Trinity or whatever. He's not like the forgotten about kid or whatever. Like, he, fully, equally God, 
holiness, love, perfection, everything is in there within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet, there's submission that happens within those relationships. Let's read the verses again with, with that point in mind. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. Who is who's able to save Him from death? Who is, who is He praying to? Who is He crying to? The Son is crying to the Father. Because the Father is able to save Him from death. And then it says, And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. That Jesus, fully God, fully man, is praying to the Father. He is putting Himself in submission. In verse 7, it says, He offered up prayers and supplications. What is He doing? He's putting Himself under the authority of the Father, whom He is equal to. Philippians 2 tells us that. Although although equality with God was something uh, that He had, He didn't hold tightly to it. He didn't... um, He humbled himself and he was open-handed with that. He humbled himself, which is why the son-father language makes so much sense. So, if you hate being told what to do, you need to know that within, within our God, Father, Son, Spirit, there is one telling another what to do. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. So what does that have to do with you? Well, you need to think about this. That submission works because those relationships are filled with holiness and with love. And it's not like holiness and love, like two separate things. It's like this, they're really like one big thing. That this perfect love that exists between them means that Jesus, the Son, can pray to the Father with tears about His death. And the Father hears Him, and the Father responds. Verse 8 says that Jesus learns obedience, that He is being trained. If that can happen within, within the relationships of our God... Maybe Jesus can help us with our issues with authority. Maybe Jesus knows what it's like to have someone tell you what to do. Maybe Jesus, maybe he's more understanding than we think he is sometimes. After all, he was in a garden before he was arrested and you know, betrayed and crucified and killed. And he was in a garden and he was praying to the Father. And one of those prayers that we see referenced here is... When he said, Father, if there's any way for this to happen, other, other than me having to go forward w- with the cross, let this cup pass from me. But it's not about my will, it's about your will. This, per- this beautiful prayer of submission. And what, and what do you think the Father, what do you think his response was? Well, they came marching in the garden to arrest him. You know? God, the Father told him no. 
I know we don't want to think about it that way. I don't like thinking about it that way. The son said, hey, spare me from this if you can. God said, no. Father said, no. So Jesus knows what it's like to be told what to do. That might not be a very powerful point. However, the love and the holiness within their relationships means that he knew the one he was submitting to. And that made the submission work. Of course you're going to submit to the holy, perfect love of the Father, right? It made sense. So because he was going to submit to his will, he was also, Jesus was also able to, to pray with that kind of honesty. The prayer in Gethsemane really is Jesus is saying, look, my answer is yes no matter what. But if it was up to me, here you go. But it's not up to me. So, there you go. This relationship that exists between them is what makes submission work. And that's why we have such a hard time submitting to uh, outside authority. Because in the, in the end, you know what? They don't know us. And we don't know them. And there is no relationship there. But when we bring that into our walk with the Lord, we have to understand the one that we're submitting to. And how do we know the one that we're submitting to? We pray. And we study the scriptures and we live in community together and we, we do this exact thing that we see Jesus doing here. So what if, what if your life and my life, what if it looked like verse 7? What if, let's read it again, but let's think about kind of us patterning ourselves after this. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. So what if, what if we offered up prayers and supplications? What if we intentionally placed ourselves in submissive settings like this, where, where instead of battling the rival king, we sit down with the rival king and we say, look, I'm, I'm under your authority. And then it says, with loud cries and tears. Okay, well, you don't have to cry Every time you pray, I mean, you can, it's fine if you do, but you don't have to just pray when you're upset or when you're struggling. Your prayers and supplications can be filled with laughter and joy as well. They can, they can be really honest in whatever the setting is. And then what if, uh, if those loud cries and tears went to him who was able to save us from whatever, whether it's eternal death or, what, or, what, or it's the someone who's able to save you from whatever you're facing in the moment. What if that verse applied to you, and, you, and then uh, you'll be heard because of your reverence? And then what if verse 8 was real for, for all of us? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What if, what if the way that we learn to submit to Jesus as our king, not our rival king, as our king, what if the pathway of that is suffering our way through some stuff? What if it is praying our way through the best days and the worst days? What if it is learning that we can be completely honest with Him? So we can cry with Him or we can laugh with Him. What if it really is a matter of learning and training and placing ourselves in those situations where we're under His authority? What if that's how we learn to break ourselves of this belief that we are the center of the universe and everything should revolve around us and that we would make a better king than Him? We don't like being told what to do. However, when the one telling us what to do is Jesus, 
and you know Him, and you know His holy love for you in a personal way, there's no better place to be. There's, there's no better place. No other way. Why, why would we walk through anything in life in any other environment? So, our authority issues, the first thing we need to do is come to terms with the fact that we don't like being told what to do. But if Jesus is the one telling us what to do, that's the most beautiful environment we could possibly think of. The second thing, flip over, still in the book of Hebrews, go over to chapter 12 for a second. So my first point was that we hate being told what to do. My second point is that we hate being told we're wrong. That maybe you like being told that you're wrong. But I kind of don't think that you are, you know. Um, and I think that that's a really normal thing. And that's probably why some of, our, some of the environments we place ourselves in look the way that they do. There are probably people that you do not want anything to do with because they're constantly criticizing you and saying that you're wrong about something or need to change something or whatever. Um, so when it comes to, um, to that reality, you know, I, I've preached a few weeks ago on like the discipline of confession, how crucial that is. But, you know, it makes perfect sense that we don't want to really confess things. Because we're not, we're not, it's not that we're being told that we're wrong, we're admitting that we're wrong, which is even worse, you know, that's even more painful. So we don't like being told that we're wrong. But look at Hebrews 12, verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His oh man, holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So yeah, we don't like being told what to do. But correction, and coming from the holy, loving one, is a shaping, like it's a relational, like shaping tool. That correction is something that, uh, you know, it's, we talk about discipline, and this word discipline is in here, and the root of that is disciple, which means learner. So every form of discipline is, it's really, it should be about teaching, not just like keeping us in line. 
But from a young age, you know, many of us were in situations where discipline was like, it was, it was about keeping you in line. It was about keeping the rules. You broke the rule, you were disciplined. And hopefully all of us have had environments where the person doing the, like carrying out the discipline sat us down and talked to us about the whole situation. What happened, why it happened, why that isn't a good thing, and that kind of stuff. Discipline in the context of love and care and like all those kinds of things, uh, that's the kind of correction that is shaping. And just like the passage says, we might not like it in the moment, but later on we're grateful for it. So probably as adults, some of you are grateful for the forms of discipline that your parents like carried out with you. Some of you are not at all grateful for that. And it's been a very, a very painful, scarring kind of thing. So I don't want to put everybody in one category or the other. But I hope at some point along the way, a parent, a grandparent, a coach, a friend, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a youth minister, that someone at some point corrected you in a loving way as a reflection of how God corrects us in a loving way. That it's a discipleship tool. It's about shaping and understanding. It's not about... Um, keeping you in line or um, punishing you because you like broke a rule or something like that. That is not what discipline is about. So all of you parents, keep in mind that that's the whole point of of those kinds of things. Um, That discipline is not, it's not emotional, it's not reactive, it's not any of that kind of stuff. That it is completely about shaping your child into like the image of Christ. And through that kind of discipline, um, that's, you know, that's how kids are discipled. That's a form of discipleship. So put yourself sitting down with the Lord, and, and, and let's say that you get, to, you get to that point, and you're just ready to, to really pray that prayer of, um, God, show me, I mean, show me the sin in my life. And he starts to do it. And then you're like, you don't know me. <laughs> and he's like, eh. Actually, I do. I know you, you. You don't even know you. I know you. you know. But of course, of course, it's uncomfortable. I mean, that passage, it's, that passage to me just nails it. If you're like, yeah, I don't really know. It's just kind of weird. I don't, I don't like to get it, sit in an environment where I, I let someone tell me that I'm wrong. Or have to go in th- from that environment. Then you, have to like, you always have to like tell someone, right? And then I don't want to go into another environment and then admit that I was wrong. So what do we do? We push away from it. We push away from confession. We push away from prayer because it's so exposing. You know, We don't really want to interact with the Bible because the Bible like, holds us to a standard that we don't really necessarily want to you know, maintain all the time. Um, we keep community at arm's length because we don't want, we don't want anybody telling me that, that I'm wrong and I don't want to have to admit it. I don't want whatever. So I'm just going to kind of keep this happy face up. Which is everybody's complaint about church people, especially in America, is that oh, everybody just acts like they got it all together all the time when they really don't. Everybody hates that, yet there's a lot of walls up, you know. We're pretending a lot, you know. And so hopefully, as you realize, like, wow, confession with Jesus is the safest place ever. Because of his holy love for you. And... That's the case for all of us. And so when we're all in the same boat, confession within your community is also a safe place. And over time, it becomes like just as safe as with Jesus. So we realize, like, hey, this is all the same, this is all the same, this is all the same. So, 
the motivation for Jesus' correction of us, His discipline of us, Him telling us what to do, telling us that we're wrong, His motivation is 100% pure. Now, you may have never had a relationship in your life where someone's motivation was 100% of the time eternally pure and awesome in everything that you could trust. Well, Jesus is not like everybody else. So stop putting him in the same category as your dad or your mom or any one of these other kind of authority figures that are out there. Stop putting him in the same category. He's not a rival king. He's your king. And when your king sits down with you and tells you what to do or tells you that you're wrong, the reason why we should be open and receive that is because it's coming from the holy creator of the universe who died so that we could live forever with him. There are no impure motives on his part. The third thing, flip back to Hebrews 4. So we hate being told what to do. We hate being told that we're wrong. The third thing is that we hate being told that we have to change. Something that I find myself saying a lot uh, is just the, that the invitation from Christ is to, is to come just as you are, but don't plan to stay just as you are. And I think sometimes like in our efforts to have Jesus and church and the gospel and everything be really welcoming, sometimes the message really is like, he doesn't care about that, he doesn't care about that, he doesn't care about that, just come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And while that's true, like he's, Jesus is not hung up on the things we're hung up on. Um, and he does say to come, the invitation is come, come and learn from me. It's transformative. It's like, come follow me and you'll become like, you know, become like me. It's never just, yeah, just come to me and just stay in the same stupid patterns you've been in for a long time. You know, that's not, that's not the gospel that Jesus preaches. You know, like, I don't really care about all that kind of stuff. I just need a bunch of followers, you know. Like, he's not, like, trying to spike his numbers on Instagram. Like, he's not into those kinds of things. He wants people who want to be just like him. It's transformative. And so he, he, he's calling us, he's drawing us to himself, and yeah, he's telling us what to do, because he's our king. And yeah, he's telling us that we're wrong, when we're wrong. He's also telling us that, we're, that he loves us a lot, you know. Like, God's not this, like, big bully that we think he is, you know. He's this loving father that's like, hey, uh, I need to correct you in something. I'm also going to just like affirm you like eternally, okay? So there's a lot of affirmation, but there's some correction in here too. So while he's doing that, he's saying, you know what, you need to change. And we don't like being told that either. We like to be like, this is who I am, you know, I just I own it. I'm comfortable in my own skin, you know. Don't try and change me. And Jesus is not trying to like change you like that, you know. Like, if you're an extrovert, he's not trying to make you an introvert, or vice versa, you know. And he's not trying to make you, he's not trying to make everybody just like the Apostle Paul, you know. He wants you to be you because he made you just like he made you. He loves you that way. He's so pleased with how you are. Um, However, when it comes to that that baseline tension we talked about in the beginning, 
that rival king thing that's in us a little bit and learning to follow after him, that means that we're, he, we're, he's calling us to change. He's saying, come as you are, but you're not going to stay as you are. You're going to change. It's going to be a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And that invitation is not one where he says, okay, well, you need to go and do this and then, and then come back. Not like, all right, in order to follow after me, you've got you to gotta go take care of this and this and this and change this about you and this about you and this about you, and then maybe we can talk. Um, his call to change is like, it's this relational tie. So look in Hebrews 4, look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, which is Jesus, the Son of God. All right, so see, like, since we have this, like, this is our priest who's sitting down with us. Uh, he's like passed through the heavens. All right, like he's pretty qualified. All right, let's, let's leave it at that. He's super qualified to sit down with you. Um, Jesus, the Son of God. All right, another qualification there. Um, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the one sitting down with you, the one that you are, the one who has, is telling you what to do, telling you that you're wrong, when you, like when you need to be corrected, the one who's disciplining you, the one who's affirming you, the one who's encouraging you, the one who is looking you in the eye and saying like, hey, this has to change. Um, that person sitting across from you is not someone who has no idea where you're coming from. He's not like, yeah, I mean, I really can't relate, but I mean, I think you kind of need to do this, you know. He's like, he's like, I've been exactly where you are. And it's so easy to dismiss that and be like, well, Jesus didn't, you know, we have so many different things, temptations and problems and things like that and issues to face that Jesus didn't face back then, you know. But at the base of it, what's at the base of it? Being a rival king. That Jesus was tempted with being a rival king. You're like, to himself? Like, well, yeah, to the Father. When Jesus was being tempted in the desert, he's fasting and he's praying, and uh, Satan comes to tempt him. Tempts him physically, tempts, him, tempts his ego. And he's just basically he's trying to get him to sin against the Father. Sin against the Father. Sin against the Father. And Jesus shut it down every single time. And now he comes to you and he comes to me and he's like, hey, I know how it is to be tempted to rival God. I've been there. And that verse says that he made it through without sinning. So not only has he been there, he says, I know how to get, I know how to get through it in holiness. I know how to get through it in the way that you, the real you, the deep down, honest, true you wants to get through it. I know. That's who you're sitting down with in prayer. That's who you're sitting down with when you open the Bible. That's who we sing to when we gather corporately. That's who you are with when you're driving around and when you're at work. and any, At any point, all the time, as his sons and daughters, that's him. He's like, I know the struggle. I know how to get through it. And look at the next verse. So with all of that in mind, verse 16, let us then with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
You know what that says? That in his call to us to change, telling us what to do, correcting, affirming, all those kinds of things, and then being like, okay, this is going to change about you. He doesn't, like, at the close of the meeting, say, all right, well, see you in a week. Good luck with all that. He's in it with you. He's invited you into this relationship. He says, take my yoke upon you. And so it's actually still over there. But this like wooden yoke thing where you put two animals in it. And he's like, no, we, us together. I know how to do this without sin. And I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going I'm to lead you. When it's, I know how to get through this. You don't. I know the temptation of wanting to rival God. I know the tears, I know, I know fear, I know, I know the struggles, I know all those kinds of things, I know it, and I know how to do it, and I'll lead you, just let me lead you, let me lead you. I know what's good, I know what's good, I know what's good, let me lead you, let me lead you. And he's not pleading in this, like, he's not desperate, he's like excited, he's determined, he's focused, because he, he loves you. He's not some weird authority figure who has no tie to you, no whatever, and all they want to do is boss you around. He's in it with you. And you're in it with him, and it's together. So the one calling you to change is not only going to tell you what to change, he's going to tell you how to change it, and he's going to help you change it. He's going to empower your efforts to change it. You're not all alone. You're not just out there to figure it all out. That do you have, we have each other? Yeah, we have each other. But more important than that, we have Jesus in the yoke with us. So do we like being told what to do? No, we don't like being told what to do. But the submission within the Trinity filled with love and holiness? Yeah, okay. That king can tell me what to do. And I don't like being told that I'm wrong, but that king, he can tell me that I'm wrong because he's right. And in him telling me that I'm wrong and leading me to change, he's going to be in it with me to change it. Come up with a better scenario. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll, be, I'll be around afterwards. If you've got a better scenario than that, you tell me. Find a better gospel than that. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying that it's easy, but I am saying that it's simple. It's definitely not easy. And he knows it's not easy. But the simplicity... Is beautiful. So, his authority is not like other kinds of authority. Stop running from the environments where, we, where you submit to it. Recognize the goodness. Recognize the love. Recognize his sovereignty and his beautiful power over all things. And yet he wants to sit down with you. Matthew 6 says that prayer is like, it's like a child going into a room and sitting down with their father and just having a conversation. Don't overcomplicate it. You go in, you sit down with the king, not the rival king, the king, and he really gives a rip about what's going on in your life. So like most weeks, I get to this point and people... Make fun of me because I say, I don't know where this lands with you. But that's the truth. I don't, I don't know where this hits you. You might be like, none of that applies to me. You know, maybe, you know. But maybe it does. It definitely does for me. And so what happens in this moment all the time is like, okay, well, I've said everything that I feel like he wanted me to say. And I think I've, hopefully I've functioned in the way that I'm supposed to within this family. And 
Now, I get, that's, that's up to you to do whatever with it. The last few weeks, we've kind of had a few different ways of responding, and so we're going to do that again tonight. And there's a lot of, you know, when we get done, after we say the blessing at the end and we go, there are a lot of things that await us, but maybe in these moments, maybe we take advantage of it. So here, here are the possibilities of response. Um, the band's going to come, we're going to do some songs, so maybe singing, maybe listening. The front down here is open for prayer, maybe coming and just kneeling and just praying. Maybe coming together, husband and wife, families, friends, or whatever. Um, John Ringo, one of our elders, will be over here and he'll be serving communion. And It's like the, where you break it off, you break off the bread, you dip it in the, in the juice kind of deal. Um, so maybe, maybe stepping to the table, maybe when your king invites you to a meal, that submission, he's saying, you know what you need? You need the body and the blood. Maybe your act of submission tonight is saying, yeah, that's exactly what I need. I need my king to sacrifice himself for me, and he has, and I'm acknowledging that and submitting to that. Um, those are some of the options. Whatever connects with you, we have the freedom to do that in these closing moments as we sing, as we sing some old songs that have been around for a long time that I think are placing us lyrically under the authority of this God, this loving, beautiful King of ours. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray as the band comes. And when, when we begin to sing, you go ahead and move and respond however you want and steward these moments well. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Um, thank you for your kindness and your, your goodness is so steady. We thank you that you are not a rival of ours. And even in that, even in that tension that's kind of there, it's, it's not real. You know, you freed us from that. It's just kind of leftover thinking that we have. And yeah, it's complicated by the world we live in sometimes. And so as we respond in some ways that, that uh, are actions of submission, I pray that you just stir some things in us that you would use these simple acts to... Um, I don't know, to, to really... Help solidify some of the commitments that we're making, the, the things that are going on within us, the, our desire to really sit under your authority. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you know, you know that struggle. And you have committed to lead us faithfully and perfectly, us as your bride, and you as our husband and that analogy and that it makes so much sense that we just follow you forward. So in these moments, whether singing or praying or taking communion or a mixture of whatever, I pray God you would empower our efforts here and, and our closing moments would uh, be everything that you have in mind.